everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mada, and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. We're back this week with a special episode on friendship in conjunction with our annual conference that takes place every year in October here at Bard College in New York. This year's topic is friendship and politics, and over the next few weeks and months, we are releasing four specials on essays by Arendt connected to the theme of friendship. Our first one is called Humanity in Dark Times from Arendt's book, Man in Dark Times. The second text is Socrates in The Promise of Politics. Our third friendship special discusses Jaspers, an essay that is also in Man in Dark Times. And lastly, we will analyze a letter to Gershom Scholem that was published in the Jewish Writings. To learn more about our conference on friendship and politics, please visit our website at hac.bard.edu. I am thrilled to now hand it over, like every week, to our host Roger Berkowitz, founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center. He will dissect these texts with and for you, the political context, Arendt's take on friendship, and why it was important to her. Please leave us a like or comment and make sure to share today's reading with your friends. So welcome everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College and thrilled to be with you. The first essay that I've asked you to take a look at, and I hope some of you had a chance to, I'm sorry we sent it to you late, is the, is the essay on humanity in dark times, which she adapts from a lecture she gave when she won the Lessing Prize and goes to Europe to speak about to accept the award and speak about Gottfried Lessing. The essay is broken into four parts by her, and it's only in part four where she really comes to friendship, which is what we're going to try and focus on. But I think we need to do a little bit of work uh, to get there. I mean, I know we've we've read this essay before in the virtual reading group. Some of you at least have. And um, in that time, folk friendship was discussed, but was not the focus today. I'm going to seek to to focus on, on friendship. You could say that part one of, of, of the essay could be titled The World and maybe even The World Versus Man. She talks about getting an award, right? And in awards, the world speaks out. The world obviously is a core idea in Hannah Arendt's work. The world is that which we share, that which lasts and is durable. And it's a space in which we as individuals can appear. And so uh, the honor, she says, of getting an award reminds us of the gratitude we owe to this space, to this world where we can be seen and heard in public. She, she goes on uh, to say that today and at all times, but especially today, this world, the world that lies between us, the in-between um, is today the object of the greatest concern and the most obvious upheaval in almost all countries of the globe. Even where the world is halfway still in order, she says, the public realm has lost the power of illumination, which was originally part of its very nature. What does this mean, that the world is um, an object of the greatest concern and that the public realm has lost the power of illumination? It means that Increasingly, uh, and this has been going on for a long time, we don't have shared worries, shares concerns, shares joys. We increasingly live in what we might call a liberal world, liberal in the Habesian and Lockean sense, in which um, the world is there simply to provide a place for us to pursue our own individual dreams and wants whether it's to make money or have a family or be a professor or be a student, whatever it is, liberalism allows people to pursue their own talents and own uh, 
path in life as individuals, um, that's the, the freedom of liberalism, is to some sense a freedom from the world or a freedom from politics. And she says in, in the West, in the liberal West, men regard freedom from politics as one of the basic freedoms, and they make use of this freedom and retreat from the world. This withdrawal from the world that liberalism allows can be extremely beneficial, both for the individual who can pursue his or her or their dreams and aspirations. They can cultivate their talents in private and society, and they can become a genius, whether it's a, a physicist or a, a philosopher or a politician. And insofar as um, the individual does pursue and reach a kind of genius, their genius reaches out again into the world and appears in the world because a genius always is someone who says something that the world is ready for and wants to hear and is thus in harmony with the world. And thus they enter back into the world. And so the liberal world is not purely anti-worldly, the liberal idea, because it, it can lead people back into the world. But for most of us, or many of us, um, liberalism does lead to what she calls a retreat from the world. Uh, what she says on page four to five is an almost demonstrable loss to the world that takes place. What is lost, she says, is the specific and usually irreplaceable in between, which should have formed between the individual and his fellow men. So what we lose is this in-betweenness. We lose this connection because we're all pursuing our own lives. Now, we still have connections with our family or our friends or our colleagues. Um, there's certainly not a, it's not a completely isolated world, but it's not a world in which there's a public connection, a public thing, a commonwealth, a res publica, as you will. Um, and, and, and that is the, the loss that she thinks has been progressively emerging since the Enlightenment, since the rise of liberalism, since the loss of a common world, whether that common world was a Roman world or a Greek world or a Christian world or a Buddhist world, um, increasingly live in a world in which there's lots of different people of different ethnicities and different aspects. And, and, and they don't share one common public world. And so we, we allow them to all emerge. Now, there was an idea, uh, a Roman idea of humanitas, which she'll get to, in which people from different ethnicities and different religions could somehow share a res publica, uh, a concern with the public thing. And in many ways, um, Arendt's political project is about thinking about how to create a public world a res publica, a republic, in a world in which there's no ethnic, religious, or other, any kind of natural or historical commonality or publicness. The, the traditions of the, the pillars of the tradition have, have, have crumbled, have shaken. And, and, and the question is, can we in some way create a public world? And that's that question, which is, I mean, I think one of the ultimate and foundational questions of Arendt's political thinking, in the end, uh, has as its answer for Arendt the idea of friendship, right? Friendship is going to be what allows people who are different, who disagree, have different religions, different races, different genders, different interests, in some way, it's going to be what holds that group of people together and says that even though we don't like each other, maybe we're friends. Now, I know that seems strange to you. Well, what does it mean to be friends with someone who you don't like? Well, her idea of friendship is based not on intimacy, not on affection, but on respect, on mutual respect, on this idea that even people we don't like and certainly that we don't love and somehow we respect them we see them as worthy of being our friend and being part of a common world that we share together lessing she says um you know entered the world or had an attitude toward the world which was neither positive nor negative but she says radically critical this is on page five 
And even though, so he was always critical of the world. He didn't he didn't think the world was great. Uh, he didn't think it was perfect. But he also, she says, was indebted to the world. He never embraced utopianism. He, he took the world as it was. Um, he had a curious, she says, kind of partiality, which clung to concrete details. This is important. A curious kind of partiality. She says he never made peace with the world. He enjoyed challenging prejudices and telling the truth to court minions. He never allowed supposed objectivity to cause him to lose sight of the real relationship to the world and the real status in the world of things or men that he attacked or praised. We're going to come back to this at the end. but So this is a precursor. This is all on page six, five and six. But I want you to pay attention to some of the words that she's using to describe Lessing. He had a curious kind of partiality. He enjoyed challenging prejudices and telling the truth to court minions. But he knew that all his his truths were prejudices. He never supposed, he never bought into or supposed objectivity. He was interested in the real world. One of the things that Arendt is going to argue here in this essay on humanity in dark times is that humanity is a bundle of prejudices. That humanity is caught up in being partial, in not being objective in not being universal and that to be friends is to not seek to agree with people to not have the right answer but to enjoy your partiality against your friend's partiality enjoy arguing and discoursing with them and finding commonalities amidst your differences not erasing your differences and and so on page 6 she'll say that lessing knew that justice has little to do with objectivity in the ordinary sense. I hope you take this for the challenge that I think it is to most of us, right? Justice has little to do with objectivity in the ordinary sense. There is no objective justice. Um, there, not only is there no objective justice, but in fact, justice requires partiality. Justice requires prejudices. Justice requires that we all fundamentally disagree with each other because only then are we having a real, a real relationship to the world. Thus, she says, we have to embrace our passions on page six. The passions reveal the real world. Passions, she says, quote, make us more conscious of our existence. They make us feel more real. Thus, against sort of a kind of cold objectivity or cold rationality, passions are at the core for Arendt of what um, being a real human being is. And so she'll say on page seven that Lessing experienced the world in anger and laughter, which are, quote, by their nature, biased. You can't be angry without being biased. Let's just be clear. You can't laugh without being prejudiced and biased. That's why they won't let comedians come to college campuses today, because comedy is based in prejudice. It's based in making fun of prejudices. It's based in showing us our prejudices. It's based in making us think critically at times of our prejudices, but it's based in prejudice. And we don't like prejudice today. And college campuses have become places where people are so afraid of even being aware of prejudice, that we banned comedy um, from college campuses. Pleasure, she says, uh, is intensified is an intensified awareness of reality. This is on page six, and it springs from a passionate openness to the world and a love of the world. Um, she uses the example of of Christianity here, that rational kinds of defenses of Christianity are actually even more dangerous than passionate Christianity because insofar as uh, you try and rationalize Christianity, uh, you, you make it into the only uh, possible view. And so Lessing, she says, was a partisan in favor of reason, but she says on page seven, his primary concern was freedom 
which was far more endangered by those who wanted to compel faith with proofs than by those who regarded faith as a gift of divine grace. So the, the people he most worried about were those Christians who tried to prove Christianity rationally. The point of a work of art uh, for, for Lessing is that it acts and that it has an effect on the spectator who, as it were, represents the world. So the artist puts something in the world that has an effect on the spectator. It acts in the spectator. He sees the work of art as what stands out in the world and draws a public around it. And in doing so, in acting, the work of art draws people out of their private and social existences into a public world, and it reconnects people to the world of the in-between. Lessing's state of mind, she says, which we need to learn, is a respect for free thinking. Uh, it can never lead to a definite worldview. And this kind of thinking, this free thinking, requires courage. And that includes the courage to welcome contradictions and defend those who are not consistent. And this is on page eight. I'm going to, I know I talked about it, this a lot the last time we did this uh, text, but I'm going to move through this pretty quickly. He calls it the fermenta cogitation onus. I can't say it right now. I'm part, sorry. Or self-thinking. The individual is, is created for action, not rationation. The self-thinking is for moving in the world in freedom. Freedom of movement and free action is how we experience freedom. And deprive the public space men retreat into the freedom of thought. But Lessing retreated into thought, not stoically, not into a self, not independently from the world. She says his thinking was never bound to results, and he explicitly renounced results. His thought, she says, is polemical. And the problem he encountered was with the world, that the world was shattered. The pillars, she says on page 10, the pillars of the best known truths today lie shattered. We are standing in the midst of a veritable rubble heap of such pillars. And so you all heard her say thinking without banisters, right? Another expression we could use is thinking without pillars. Um, and there's a certain advantage to thinking out of pillars, right? Which is that there's no standards and traditions. And that gives us a kind of freedom to think freely and new. But to think without pillars is hard, if not impossible. The pillars, she says, the pillars of truths give the world a kind of political order. The pillars, she says on page 10 to 11, guarantee continuity and permanence without which it cannot offer mortal men the relatively secure, relatively imperishable home that they need. And so this problem that we have today is that we, we have lived in, we live in this world in which the truths, the common world is shattered. And yet every time we try and re-erect the lost pillars, we fail. And so we then fall back on old truths, right? And every time we fall back on old truths, people sort of lose faith in them, believe them less and less, and yet are scared of not having them. And so they hold on to them ever harder. And this is the predicament in many ways that we are in. And in such a world, the truths of that public world become less and less meaningful, right? Whether it's democracy, freedom, religion, Christianity, Buddhism, you know, Islam, Judaism, they're out there. We all know them, but we all sort of know we need to believe in something, but we don't really believe in them. And so we increasingly turn to liberalism, live amongst ourselves, and retreat into our private lives. We substitute the public world and we turn into a private world. In, in part two of the essay, she says that um, in such dark times, the general way that we address this problem is by developing what she calls fraternity. The idea that we will, as individuals, especially persecuted people who feel that they are not able to have an impact or power or uh, any kind of standing in the public world, they, they retreat into what she calls a worldless humanity. They live close together. They become friends in the sense of intimate, and they create a warmth, a kind of kindness and sheer goodness. This is the kind of fraternity that seeks humanity in compassion, that we have compassion for other people, that we want to help other people. Uh, and she says, this is the compassion that emerged in the French Revolution. Um, for those of you who know it, this is the compassion she talks about in her letter to James Baldwin 
uh, after she read what would become The Fire Next Time in The New Yorker. Um, and this, this desire to create a kind of fraternal closeness where we love each other and we talk about, you know, um, you know, that we as Jews, you know, yeah, we, we like to, we like to say prayers together. We like to celebrate holidays together. We like, we, 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 we celebrate our, 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 our stereotypes. We celebrate who we, you know, um, a kind of eccentricities. Um, and there's a kind of, uh, love of our, of our, of our powerlessness, love of our little things, of our, the little beauties, which can be very beautiful and can be very powerful bonds between people in this way. And yet she says these, these, these very powerful bonds uh, of humanitarianism um, make us invisible to the larger world. Uh, we replace the commonality of the world with the idea of a common human nature or compassion. And we say that all people are equal. And we we sort of celebrate our equality in things that we all like Netflix, or we all like this kind of music, or we like music, or we like to dance. But we lose a kind of larger idea of of of, of what holds us together in a public sense. And um, in part three, beginning on page twenty two, she then gives a couple of examples of of how we how much and how do we retain reality in an inhuman world. So if one example was liberalism, retreat to the private, another example is fraternity through compassion. Um, in part three, she says, uh, we can also find humanity in a kind of inner migration. And her example here is Carl Jaspers or uh, a kind of flight from the world. The flight from the world in dark times, she says that the inner migrant does like Jaspers, can always be justified as long as reality is not ignored. Though the people who sort of flee from reality must remember that they are constantly on the run and that the world's reality is actually expressed by their escape. In such a migration, though, it's easy to bypass or forget reality. And that's what she says Heidegger uh, and people like Heidegger did. They fled the world, but they fled the world in such a way that he thought himself too good and noble to pit himself against such a world, she says. And so simply ignored the stupid blather of the Nazis and thus ignored the world. And that's another danger of living, uh, of seeking humanity by inner immigration in, in, in dark times. And so she uses the example of the case of a friendship between a German and a Jew, right? And she says, you know, when if you're living in a Nazi period when Jews are persecuted, if you, you have to think of yourself as a Jew, if you're if you're attacked as a Jew, you have to defend yourself as a Jew. She says nowadays on page 18, such an attitude would seem like a pose because if Jews aren't being attacked to defend yourself as a Jew seems like a pose. But insofar as all of us, to some degree, are living a life of, of invisibility, all of us, uh, to some degree, uh, are, are caught in this in this need to belong to a group, whether it's Jews or Blacks or or Christians or Muslims or Americans or whatever it is. And and she says that in in such a time to ignore that there's a German and a Jew and just say we're all human is complete uh, abdication of reality of the world. True friendship, she says, need to acknowledge the real world. This brings us to the Part four and the last part of the essay, and the one that is to is in our conversation the most important on the political relevance of friendship or the humanity of discourse versus truth. And, and this is this is, I think, the the key uh takeaway that I hope you're gonna take today, which is that in dark times, right? Yeah, one one opportunity, one response in dark times is compassion, another is inner migration. Another is kind of irresponsible flight to universalism. And another would be to seek truth, objective truth, scientific truth. And what she's going to say is that's a mistake. And that what we need instead is the humanity of discourse, which is what she's going to call friendship. For the Greeks, the essence of friendship, she says, was in discourse, in the polis where citizens talk to one another. And it was an experience of the joy of friendship, 
those with whom we share our rejoicing, not in misfortune, but in our joys. And for Aristotle, the philia among the citizens is one of is one requirement, or friendship among citizens is one requirement of the well-being of the city. So in discourse, on page 24, in discourse, the political importance of friendship and the humanness peculiar to it were made manifest. In discourse, the political importance of friendship and the humanness peculiar to it were made manifest. Discourse, when we talk to people, and let's be honest, this only one happens when we talk to people we disagree with. And that's an important point. When we talk to people we disagree with, the common world emerges. Now, why? When we talk to people we disagree with, does the common world emerge? Because when we talk to people we disagree with, we have to find what we share. We have to find what holds us together. And so when we talk about justice and piety with people we disagree with, I say I'm pro-life and you say I'm pro-choice. Well, somewhere we have to find what holds us together. And so in talking about justice and piety, we make the world more justice and pious. We find what holds the world and what we share and what we and we humanize the world. So she says the world becomes human only when we can discuss it with our fellows. On page 25, she says, we humanize what is going on in the world and in ourselves only by speaking of it. And in the course of speaking of it, we learn to be human. What do we speak of? Right? Another question is, what do we not speak of? Think about so many things we refuse to speak of today. Questions of race or racism or we speak about them only with people we disagree with. The sublime, the horrible, the third rails, the things we don't speak about. And in increasingly taking things off the table and not speaking of them because they're politically correct or because they lead to disagreement or they lead to discomfort, we dehumanize the world. And so what she wants to say is that the Greeks and the Romans both saw humanity in this discourse, and especially the Romans saw humanity in a discourse in a plurality of different ethnic origins with different worlds, right? The Roman Empire had many different people in it, and yet somehow discourse, citizenship, was what we talked about with all of us. And she says, friendship is not intimately personal, what makes political demands, right? That's one of the key points. Friendship makes political demands, namely, that in friendship, we say we must be friends, along with Nathan the Wise on page 25, even if we disagree. And not only that, even if I think I'm right and I think you're wrong, we must be friends. That's the political demand of friendship, right? That we realize that there are no truths and we're glad for the infinite number of opinions, that the great danger, she says, is those who wish to subject all men's ways of thinking to the yoke of their own, right? Kant, she says, to the extent he sets up a categorical imperative to which we are bound, does so unmercifully and even at the expense of humanity. There may be things we have to do in line with the categorical imperative that are inhuman. And she says the inhumanity of Kant's moral philosophy is undeniable. Lessing, however, rejoiced in the idea that there is no absolute law. There's no absolute truth. There's no categorical imperative. And thus, today, we may not think we possess the truth, but we, most of us, many of us, think we know what's right. And we take what's right from this idea of science, from the idea of objectivity, that scientists, even though scientists know that their truths are never final, Somehow we believe they are. And on 28, she says, whether we think we have truth or are right, few today are ready to sacrifice their view to humanity or friendship. Right? Think that through. We have to be willing to sacrifice our view of what is true to humanity and friendship. What does that mean? It means that I may think we should have more immigration and you may think we should have less immigration. We may both think we're right. I may think global warming is a threat to humanity, and you may think it's not, and we may both think we're right. But humanity and friendship are higher. 
They're about creating a human world. And that's what politics is. That's what it means to live a life of thoughtfulness, of of courageous thinking. And we have to do away with the ideal of objectivity and rightness. You know, and she says, is there, there, we have to do away with the idea that there's any right opinion that could justify the sacrifice of friendship. Page 29, right? I mean, I mean, she's taking this from her experience with the Eichmann book, right? She lost a lot of friends and she wrote to them and said, we may disagree, but we're still friends. She could do that. Many of her friends could not. In her mind, friendship and humanity and thus a common world are more important than objectivity and rightness. And this brings us back to prejudice. Lessing writes against objectivity. He says that humanity based in friendship is about partisanship. It's about polemicism. It's about prejudices. It's a vigilant partiality on page 29, which is not subjective, is not subjectivity because it is always framed not in terms of the self, but in terms of the relationship of men to their world, in terms of their positions and opinions. I love that, a vigilant partiality, right? That's not about my view, but about the world of my friends and my people. He would never let partisanship get away in the friendship. That was Lessing's humanity. And so Lessing's humanity, which she says is a kind of humanity for dark times, is opposed to truth, is opposed to liberal retreat, is opposed to inner immigration, and is opposed to compassion. For Lessing, the humanity of friendship is against the humanity of compassion, right? It's not about saying, I have compassion with people. It's about saying, um, here's my views, here's your views. And we have to uh, not simply say, oh, yes, I love all people, right? A humanity of compassion or fraternity. Lessing's friendship, she says, is impossible in solitude. It belongs to an area in which many voices vie together and where each one's truth both links and separates men, bridges and affirms the in-between that makes up the common world. And she ends uh, on 31 with the quote, um, which she says is the most profound thing said about the relation between truth on the one hand and the humanity of friendship on the other. Let each man say what he thinks is the truth and let the truth itself be recommended or given to God. Okay, um, I'll stop there. There's a lot to talk about. Let's try and focus it on friendship just because that's what we're, 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 inter- we're interested in around the conference and today. Um, but there's a, there's a, we, can, we can get to friendship from a lot of these different points of view and, and we will get going. All right, uh, Stephen, you're up first. Thank you, Roger. Um, I'd like to uh, put this talk into into the perspective of what Hannah Arendt was doing at the time, because she was speaking in Hamburg 15 years after World War II as a Jew facing Germans who had carried out the Holocaust or who were complicit in in letting it happen without protest. And uh, I think this is very powerful that she is invoking Lessing, who was a great influence on her, and saying, let us be friends. Let us be friends in an honest way, looking at our differences, telling the truth about our experiences. And uh, Lessing was a really important figure for her. Uh, I think he was the model for her style of thinking, thinking for oneself. But also he was the uh, first uh, German thinker who may had a public friendship with a Jew, Moses Mendelssohn, uh, which was really outrageous at the time. And his plays were about the humanity of Jews, which was very much against the grain of his time. So I, I think that uh, this this talk is not only important for us now in our context in which uh, people 
tend to retreat into their zones of agreement and are completely unable to talk to those they, they disagree with, but also as a uh, reminder of, of what was important for Anna Arendt in her life when she gave this speech. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, I, that's, I think those are all right. And I sort of, we talked more about it the last time this we did this lecture in the, in the reading group. I, I sort of skipped over it this time, and it's nice to, for you to bring it out. I mean, Hannah Arendt spends a few pages identifying herself here as a Jew, right? And saying, um, you know, it's important for you to see me as a Jew, right? Don't, don't expect me to come here to Germany 15 years after the Holocaust and, and speak to you as a world citizen or as an American, um, or whatever you want to see me as, right? You have to see me as a Jew and someone who was imprisoned for in Germany and could easily, and put in a camp in Southern France and could easily have been killed. And, and so I think that's an important uh, part. I mean, there's a, on page 18, um, you know, there's this part time where she says, you know, look, if you're attacked as a Jew, you defend yourself as a Jew. And then she says, um, but to say that today is a pose. Now, I think what she's saying, right, is that, you know, when when you're not living in a world of rabid Nazi anti-Semitism, the fact that you're Jew is not the most essential part about you and you can move on. And yet. Here she is at the, in the same speech in which she says, if to say that today, it's opposed saying I'm a Jew. Now, part of that's the context of going to Europe and, and speaking in Germany and, and, and wanting to, to say that, you know, I've, as I was looking over my notes and rereading the text this morning, I really stumbled on that, on that line, I have to say, because I think it's, it represents so much of the fault lines in our current thought on this question at what, I mean, look at the Supreme court decisions that came down two weeks ago. At what point do we say, do we stop saying that I identify myself as a Jew or a black person or a Muslim or something else? At what point, right? Do I, um, is it a pose versus at what point is it still I'm attacked as X and I defend myself as X. And, and, and I think that, that, that kind of question, you know, it, it, it's, it's very much alive in our society today. And I found myself um, completely, I mean, I actually found myself stopped there for a long time, not sure how to respond or, or go on when I was reading the text there. So I uh, appreciate you bringing that up, Stephen. Um, I think that's great. Thank you. Thank you. Bill. Well, I, I don't really know how to participate, Roger. So um, my problem usually, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Hannah Arendt's thinking, but there's a basic assumption that we are somehow of a common world. That's what she said, that we have to be friends in order to preserve what? Preserve what makes us human or a common world. It's not that long ago. Now, maybe as a Jew speaking to a group of, potentially uh, anti-Semites, maybe that should be more, I should feel more of a con connection with her. But quite frankly, I'm not quite sure that we have earned yet. And I'm talking about a race of people who were considered subhuman not so long ago. And in many quarters now, still. Yeah. When did this common world happen? I have to will myself and I'm a liberal black person. I see more and more people who are black people when we secretly talk, you call it Afro-pessimism or what have you, they say, don't be fooled by this bullshit. They don't really think you are on their world. So Hannah Arendt, this is when she sometimes sounds to me naive. I love it about her, but even to hear you say it right now, it sounds because, hey, wait a minute, I, what was she doing 15 years after the Holocaust? Was she really sitting with people like Native Americans, like Blacks? Was she really talking about the experience of never having been part of the common world? And if I hear once again 
the Romans and the Greeks. What in the hell? I'm assuming you've been reading in Bembe's a critique of Black Reason. Mm-hmm. We need more of it, Roger. Yeah, because I feel like I, I don't. I sometimes I feel pushed away by. Okay, enough said. That's all I'm saying is I don't really know how to participate. And I have been in an interracial relationship most of my adult life. I have a mixed race company. I live in the art world in New York. But there is this feeling that it's all been some sort of a make-believe. And that there, how did we get to a common world? Thanks, Robert. Thank you, Bill. Um, so I guess the first... The first thing I want to say and is just that I don't think there is a common world right now, right? I think that's what she's talking about, right? Um, was there ever uh, is 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 a is an also important question. Um, she certainly doesn't think there has been one for a long time, and so uh, her question here about the politics of friendship, if I understand it and am I and and trying to construct what I consider to be a politics of friendship in her work is that how do we how do we live in a world that's not common that's I take it to be her question well that's what dark times are dark times are when the common world has shattered and there is no common world excuse me Roger but you have to accept that there was for some of us on this planet there never was a common world with Europe. The I, Europeans were voracious. They absolutely. were. So I'm, I'm not sure how you got to where you just jumped to. Well, okay. So what? What I? Uh, so she thinks the European common world started to fall apart somewhere in the somewhere, let's say, the 17th, 18th century, right? So around the time of the slave trade as well. Um, uh, that was happening. I mean, there. she thinks there was a common world in Greece. She thinks there was a common world in Rome. She would probably think there were common worlds in Africa um, as well. Uh, and, and elsewhere, certainly in China and, 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 and places. Um, but she thinks that she's just looking at the modern world today. And you're right, the modern world that is largely a product of, uh, of European civilization. And saying we live in a world that's increasingly shattered and doesn't have a common world. And how do we create one? And the main answer that people have given is compassion. And that's the answer that I think most of us still have today. And by compassion is standing in here for a lot of things, but it's standing in for the idea of equality. It's standing in for the idea that the way to build a common world given our current situation is to have compassion with the downtrodden, to have compassion with the Jews, to compassion with the Muslims, to have compassion with the blacks, to have compassion with the poor, to have compassion with people who are, um, you know, uh, pariahs or, or, or outsiders or, or, or impoverished or invisible. And what she says is that has been the sort of, the, the sort of philanthropic approach to politics for 300 years since the French Revolution. And it hasn't worked. And it's not going to work. That's her view. Um, it's not going to work because it can't build a, a politics. It, it only takes one side, namely the side of the downtrodden or, or the pariahdom. And it never tries to create a common world that includes everybody. And so it ends up being hypocritical. It ends up being uh, um, uh, the pitiful, uh, a world of compassion turns into pity. So you look down on the pitiful and you, in a sense, tell them what they think they should want instead of creating a world where you actually listen to them and build a world where they listen to you and you listen to them and try and build a common world. And so her view is that the only possible way to build a common world is the way is, is a way that we haven't really tried for the last 300 years. It's not through compassion. It's not through science. It's not through objectivity. It's not through social science, which, you know, tells you how to make the world better or more just it's by talking with each other, honestly, 
and finding where we agree and where we disagree and liking them both. And in doing that, I mean, why, why can't we all just get along? No. Well, I mean, you know, I, you I, know, you know, I, what I'm being, I'm being facetious. Right? I know you're being facetious. But it sounds I, that, that, that basic, well, why can't we just all get along? See, I don't see. I, in fact, I don't think it's why can't we just all get along? Because I think in a lot of, I mean, I think it, why can't we just all get along is, is the opposite of what she has in mind. She wants to say, why can't we all actually say what we believe and bring conflict out into the open? Even if I hate you. Yes. Even no, if I I'm, hate I'm, no, no, you're, I'm not talking now to you, but I'm talking to the Mar no, Mar Marjorie Taylor Greens and persons who are working overtime to take apart the, the, the democracy we have. They do not want to say to me, why can't I embrace you? Why can't can we just sit down and and, and take care of our distance? I mean, I'm, I, 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 I hear what you're trying to say, Roger, but there's something basically that she is not dealing with that I find makes it really hard to, to accept the higher premise that she's trying to get to. Why can't we sit down and talk it out? That sounds to me like really naive now. We're at the right. point of guns. I don't want to say, I don't think what she's saying is why can't we sit down and talk it out, right? I think what she's saying is why can't we go out into the world and honestly argue with each other from a position of, I don't like you. I'd rather not spend my time with you, but I want to be friends in this world as civil friends with you. And now, Roger, I would say, I don't like you. I don't trust you because I don't think you've done the work. Someone just said about historical wisdom. I don't think you've done the work to know what you have really done and what has really happened. I think you're trying to get to some place we haven't earned yet. This is what I would say. Uh, so that now take me there. Yeah, I don't like you. I don't trust you. You have proven this again and again. Why should I want to um, to have to em have empathy for you? What about that? Well, I don't even have to have empathy for you. Um, I just have to respect that you're a person, and we share this world together, and we have to figure out where we're going to get along. Um, you know, I mean, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. You know, how do how you know for for me, you know, or you. I have to dig deep, to be honest with you, because my first reaction when you said that is, well, not her. Right. Mm -hmm. But I have to dig deep. Right. And I have to say, I don't have to like her. I don't have, to have any respect for her. I can hate her. I do hate her. I'll be very clear. I never met her, but I hate what she stands for. But she has every right to be there. And I have to listen to her and I have to realize that she represents people. Mm -hmm. And I have to be able to not just sit down and get along with those people, but I have to be able to argue with them and seek to figure out a way to live together with them and, and not let them hurt push, me. simply. Let me, let me just give me, let me just finish this thought. All right. Simply to push them away is not going to work. I have to understand that we share a common world, like it or not. And, and, and that's going to cause, and, 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 and I'm going to have to change. Right. I'm going to have to understand that some of my prejudices against Marjorie Taylor Greene and her people are unjustified prejudices. And so and I'm going to have to have I'm going to have to push her to understand that her prejudices against people like me and some of my friends are unjustified prejudices. And we're going to have to figure out we're not going to have to like each other, but we have to figure out where we can find common ground. Um, and that's that's review on the question of of race. Because you brought it up, and I think it's an important one. And I think one has to be um, clear about this. Arendt largely um, uh, stayed out of these debates uh, for a certain period of time. But starting around the time of reading The Fire Next Time by Baldwin, mm -hmm. and then in some letters and in um, her, her essay in 1970, Civil Disobedience, you can see Arendt's opinion on these things changing a lot. And I think we talked about this when we did our sessions on race a couple months ago. 
she begins to say things she's never said before, which is things like the 14th Amendment was not enough, right? We needed another constitutional amendment that explicitly said that the slaves and descendants of slaves are part of the American community, are part of the American world. That's a new thing for her to say in 1970, right? Took her a while, right? She she was learning, but she got there. And those are the kind of things that I think, um, you know, are, are at least, you know, for someone like you, Bill, who loves to read Hannah Arendt, but has these queries, I think that's at least something one can look to, right? She, she was beginning to understand exactly the question you started with, which is that the problem of slavery and the history of it was such that without a fundamental, explicit welcoming, there could be no attempt to create a common world between black and white in this country. And that, that was needed in a public way. I'm not saying it's sufficient and I'm not trying to defend her in that way. I'm just saying, I think that's the kind of move we need to head towards to get to where you're pushing us. And I think you're right to push us. And I thank you for that. And I think I would really hope that the, that going forward, this seminar that you're going to do on friendship, this is going to be a, a pivotal question right now, because literally our next election pivots on uh, 71 million people decided something about Donald Trump, which which can, can crystallizes some other feelings they have about whose country this is. And that behooves the others of us to engage them in a way, knowing that as Carrie Blake, Carrie Wetter Lake says, if you want to get to Donald Trump, you got to go through me. And there are 70, she said 73, she said 73 million other people, you got to go through them. And don't forget that we are all carrying guns. Okay, now let's yeah. sit down and like, let's uh, sit down and get past our prejudices on that one. I think we're at the point of civil war. I don't know how this moment, Miss Arendt, can help us in this moment. Anyways, but I've taken up more time, but I'm looking forward to hearing what other people have to say. Thanks, Roger. Yeah, thank you, Bill. I'll just say I'm in Kansas right now, and every hotel I check into, I have to tell them that I'm not carrying a gun. That's what they ask. Are you carrying a firearm? I did not know this was part of what it meant to live in Kansas, but now I do. Mm -hmm. um, so there we go. All right. Um, enjoy reading Hannah Arendt, and thank you all very much. Look forward to seeing you next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.